It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. One of the most fun and wonderful parts of doing this podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable, is the pre-show banter with our guests, because I always feel like that's a way to energetically take someone's temperature. We're not actually taking Caleb's temperature. That would be maybe a little invasive for meeting someone for the first time. I'm open-minded. It's, it's you know, I mean, maybe when we actually do meet, but we're energetically taking each other's temperature. And we were talking about the, the subject of manifesting and the correct pronunciation of your name, because we always want to make sure we honor pronunciation here on the podcast. And you mentioned some interesting manifestation you've got going on. Our guest today, Caleb, is the CEO of Legacy. We're going to talk a lot about fertility. We're going to talk a lot about health. We're going to talk about parenthood. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But before we dive into all that with this brilliant man, you mentioned you want to manifest a Netflix special a la Tiger King mm-hmm. called Sperm mm-hmm. King. You already have the celebrity connections with the round of funding you just nailed. Mm-hmm. And dive into that. So what is your vision for Sperm King on Netflix, my friend? Thank you. I'll start by saying Mercury's in retrograde right now. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I am a big believer that you have to tell the world what you want. And I believe that if you've built up enough good karma over the years, the world will eventually give it to you. And, you know, people say that you have to bend the world to your will, which I believe, because the world is very comfortable in the inertia and the stasis that it has. But with the right people and the right support and the right ideas, the world is much more likely to open up for you as opposed to you having to force your will on it. And so... I'm a big believer in good karma. I'm a big believer in telling the world what you want. And about 10 years ago, uh, when I was signing up for Instagram, because I'm that old now, I picked the I picked the handle DJ Not Khaled. Because I've grown up for better or for worse in the shadow of this very illustrious man, DJ Khaled. And I felt like this is a way to make sure that I was connected to him eternally. And so at the time I said, someday, someday, I'm going to do something with my brother from another mother, DJ Khaled. And so A few months ago, we announced a celebrity round of funding for my company, Legacy, that included Justin Bieber, excited about him, Orlando Bloom, excited about him too, The Weeknd, excited about him, and DJ Khaled. And that was the day that I knew that I had made it in life. And so I am here to verbalize my next manifestation, which is there's two Netflix shows that everyone watched during lockdown. There was Indian Matchmaking right? Not on the lookout for that anytime soon. And the second was Tiger King. And I just want to say to the world that there will be a Netflix special called The Sperm King, and I will be one of the stars. What do you envision, (laughs) Caleb, as being featured in The Sperm King? Like, let's dive into that. And would you go so far as to change your social handles to the The Sperm King? I mean, it's a bold move. I mean, talk about manifesting. (laughs) it's a bold move i don't know if i'm emotionally ready just yet because i you know already my aunts and my uncles and my distant friends and acquaintances and people i met at a bar one time send me sperm articles you know but hey heard about this you know great ejaculation a thought of you and just want to send this to you via whatsapp 
you know, not even signal, not even encrypted. So I'm already getting a lot of that. And so I will one day have to adapt to that handle. I'm not there yet emotionally. The timing of your appearance here on the podcast is interesting for a lot of reasons, because I feel like in my personal life in the past couple of weeks, there's been a higher occurrence and frequency of conversations around fertility and pregnancy. The first mm-hmm. of which occurred, well, actually the second of which I'm going to reverse the order. A couple of days ago, my mother who lives in Detroit, we were talking about the prolific fertility of my grandmother Rose and how many children she had, which I believe was eight. And she lost one of wow. them, unfortunately, uh, right after birth. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing was, and I never knew this, My grandmother had her first child at 18 and her last child at nearly 46 years old, which to me, that was exactly my reaction. I was like, my God. I mean, I knew my grandmother was prolific in terms of her birthing skills, but my God, what a span, 18 to 46. And what this brought up to me and what I want to present to you, and and I know, of course, legacy, we focus on sperm health and preservation and, and male fertility, but it immediately struck me that my grandmother at nearly 46 years old, a few months shy of her 46th birthday, had a healthy, thriving baby boy who is now my favorite Uncle Bill. What are some of the myths? Because to me, I think age, while there is obviously some specific biological link to fertility exhausting itself, it made me think, what are some myths or perhaps, I don't know, overhyped concerns in our society regarding male and female fertility. What's true and what are some things where you're like, that's not exactly true? Yeah. I have a couple of thoughts here. Uh, The first is I actually think very little is overhyped when it comes to fertility. I actually think that it's an industry that is largely underhyped when we can come back to that. What I will say is what people underestimate at all ages is that it is a numbers game. And so you think back to sex ed or what you learned about sexual health when you were growing up. And it was really a lot if it was about either abstinence or about contraceptive use. And it was this idea that, hey, one mistake, right? One time you don't use a condom, one time something breaks and boom, pregnancy, right? And this is what we were all trained or what we all grew up thinking. The reality is actually very different. And so you take a look at demographic trends in the US. The median age has gone up meaningfully over the last 40 years. People are meeting each other later. They're choosing to move in later. They're choosing to get married later. And they're choosing to have kids later. So you look at the number of women who are now having their first child. There's more women in the 31 to 35 age range having their first child versus the 26 to 30 age range, right? And this is just a reflection of the ways in which we're moving as a society. And so what this means is by the time you are actively trying to conceive with your partner, the numbers and the odds have gone down because take a heterosexual couple, you have a man who's older and less fertile. You have a woman who's older and less fertile. And what this translates to three things. The first is it is going to take you that much longer on average, right? It's a numbers game. It's an average to have kids. And so it's no longer that you're going to start trying to conceive with your partner and then boom, you know, pregnancy happens, it can often take six, seven, eight, nine months. And in fact, about one in six or one in seven couples, it takes them 12 months or longer to be able to conceive. And this is the medical definition of infertility, which means you've been actively trying to conceive for 12 months or longer. Think about that. One in six or one in seven, right? Everyone that I talk to knows someone who has gone through infertility. It's stigmatized. It's hidden. It's a medical issue that people don't love talking about. It's like hemorrhoids right? Who wants to tell anyone that you have hemorrhoids, right? (laughs) Right. Infertility is similar in the sense that you don't want to tell someone that you're unable to conceive. And 
I often think about this one couple that we spoke to who had been trying to conceive for a certain number of months, hadn't been working. It had been at least six months. And what the female partner said, she said, every month that I get my period is a physical representation of our failure to do the one thing that we were put on this planet to do, right? Heavy, heavy. And so the older a couple is, the more likely they are to take a long time to conceive, the more likely they are to face a miscarriage, again, something that people don't talk about, extremely common, right? It's the reason why you typically don't tell friends until you've been pregnant for at least three months because miscarriages are so often. And then finally, you're more likely to have a child born with a congenital condition like autism. So you look at the rates of autism among older dads and you're talking, you know, 40 plus versus 30 or younger and you're five or six times more likely to have a child born with autism, right? Again, it's coming from a small base, but on a relative basis, it's a lot higher. There's a lot of other congenital conditions that can occur because as you get older as a man, the number of genetic mutations, the DNA damage that you carry in your sperm goes up over time. And so, you know, to bring it back to your question, what people don't know is really it's a numbers game. And you need to be thinking about this at a much earlier stage than most people do. We typically don't think about fertility until our 30s or when we're actively planning to conceive. And the reason that I say it's underhyped, not overhyped, is because for men in particular, right, we don't know this. We look at Mick Jagger and think, wow, that guy had kids in his 70s, right? Like Mick Jagger is our number one enemy as a company. Because people look at him and say, okay, I'm going to be fine. But they don't know about the risks that I just described. And so I think it it really comes down to this idea that it's a numbers game. It's a probabilities game. You don't know how things are going to turn out. But I can tell you with extremely high confidence that it's not going to be what you learned in high school. It's very rare to be the first time you're trying to conceive with your partner that you get lucky. And in fact, in some circles, the final point I'll make here is in some circles, these are known as unicorns which is successfully achieving a pregnancy in your first month of trying because it's so rare. It's funny because the friends of mine who did seem to have an easy time, they almost use it as like a bragging, right? Totally. Like <laughs> not, we're so, we're so fertile. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't mind. Like I, I personally have not tried, so it hasn't been a, a concern of mine because I, I don't know what it's like to try over and over and over again. On the other hand, I have had some friends who really struggled to conceive and I could feel that energy that you're describing of, of this frustration and feeling like a failure and like really wanting something. And so just observing the different spectrums of it, plus my own spectrum, which is feeling unattached, you know, I'm more of this thought process at this time in my life that if it happens, it happens, but it's not like a a huge deal for me. And I'm actually very fascinated by all the different levels of this because there are some people who seem to really want to have children and they're actively working towards it. They're inviting in and some people are very thoughtful about it. Some people seems to be like, this is just what you do. And they're, they're just you know, moving forward with with what they've been thinking about since a kid or how they were raised. And then there are people that maybe are more on my side of the spectrum, which are just kind of like, hey, if, if it happens, it happens. And then there are people where Jason kind of falls into this category, at least the last time we spoke about it. It feels like it's been shifting a lot for you, Jason. So this is a good time for an update is you, for the most part, have seemed like you don't want to have kids, but it seems like there's still like a part of you that's considering it. It's not like a no way, 
never going to happen thing. It seems like you've always been like leaving a little bit of room just in case. Is that still true? Yeah. You know, and now, you know, having this conversation with Kaled, I I need to get a home testing kit and see what my DNA looks like because I'm 44 and I have prided myself, to your point, Whitney, on keeping myself, you know, really, really healthy, working out, eating organic. We're both plant-based. I mean, it's been very, very... You look look fantastic, by the way. I'm shocked to hear that you're 44. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I just shaved recently and it took 10 years off. I had, I kind of had like the Grizzly Adams beard going. And once that came off, it was like, whoa, my girlfriend was like, I'm dating jailbait now. Great. (laughs) (laughs) At 44, though, to back up kind of Whitney's lead question here, other than, I suppose, aging... You know, we talk about damage and the damage to sperm and and what affects our fertility. It makes me curious because maybe it's just because of the way that I've clicked on too many conspiracy theories on my Instagram and Facebook algorithm. But I do see a lot of articles popping up about things like 5G, things like keeping Mm -hmm. your cell phone in your pocket too close to your testicles, things like the xenoestrogens in a lot of the plastics that leach into our food. How do we separate what might be sort of overhyped, fear-mongering conspiracy talk versus what actually is damaging male sperm? Could you speak to that yeah. a little bit? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on this, Jason. So okay. I, I want to start by just making a quick comment on the concept of parenthood, because it's something we talk a lot about. I think a lot about I'm 32. You know, I do see myself as being a husband and a father as I get older. And what people will typically say when it comes to parenthood is they, they often describe it, and men in particular describe it as an inevitability. And I think that's fascinating because almost every man, everyone thinks about having a family, right? Not everyone chooses to, not everyone is able to, but everyone asks themselves the question, like, do I want kids? And I think this actually stems from a fundamental narcissism, which is what are kids? Kids are a combination of the two things you love the most in the world, the person, your significant other, or the person you've chosen to marry and yourself. And so actually in a weird way, having kids is really just a form of narcissism that you're bringing into the world. Wow. I've never heard that in my life. And that's like, that's like a bomb tweet right there. (laughs) You know what? Yeah, I'm definitely writing that down. And I'm really glad that you said that because it's controversial. So also in my head, I was like, if we just put out that phrase, I think some people would be frustrated or angry out of context. But I personally agree with that for the most part. And this is what I was kind of implying earlier when... I've observed, and again, this is all all observation, not personal experience, and a bit judgy, is it feels like there are a good number of people who choose to have kids for themselves, not for the kids. It's like, I want to do this because this improves my life, but I'm constantly thinking, but you're bringing a human being into this world that's not you, that's not for you, that's not on this earth to, Mm. it's not about you. And I think... Another thing I've heard from a lot of parents is that when they have kids, they realize life is less about them. So maybe it actually, Mm. in a way, Mm. supports them in becoming less narcissistic. So there's like, or maybe it amplifies it depending on the parent, right? (laughs) Well, I think think that a lot of couples have kids for the wrong reasons. And two in particular that I'm thinking of is either they've reached a rocky period in their relationship and they feel like having kids will kind of strengthen and cement the bond that they have together. We hear about this quite often. 
And the other is feeling like they have to have kids because that's what society expects of them. I do think kind of the no kids movement has actually been an overdue pushback at this concept that you need children to be a functioning adult in our society. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with choosing not to have kids. I think the most important thing is that you are the person making the choice, right? And in an ideal world, you've chosen to preserve your fertility, you've frozen your eggs, you've frozen your sperm, what have you. And you've done it when, you know, it's, it's younger, it's healthier. So the choice is still available to you. And then you have the freedom to decide whatever it is you want. And, and we hear from a lot of folks who didn't want to have kids until they met someone special. And then for the first time in their lives, they felt, you know, I cannot wait to bring beautiful children into this world with the person that I love so much. And so I think there are good and bad reasons why people choose to have kids. But I, I am a big believer that having kind of the freedom to choose how to have a family, when to have a family is so, so important. You don't ever want that to be taken away from you. I want to come back, Jason, you were asking earlier kind of about, you know, DNA damage and chemicals. And I have so many thoughts on this. I'll start at a biological level, which is sperm, unlike eggs, sperm is continuously produced by the man, whereas women are born with all the eggs they will ever have. And so that means you're continuously producing sperm, which creates more and more opportunities for you to have DNA mutations, genetic mutations. And so men actually produce genetic mutations at a rate four times faster than women at a rate of approximately once every eight months. And so what that means is that's as you get older, you're going to have accumulated more DNA damage, the majority of which is benign, these mutations, right? The majority is, is benign, but cancer is really just a form of mutations that occur and that proliferate very quickly within the body. And so that's where this, this kind of the genetic risk enters in because we're constantly producing sperm and there's DNA damage that accumulates over time. So what's actually causing all of this? Sperm counts and sperm concentrations have gone down by 50 to 60% over the last 40 years, right? So that means that I am about half as fertile as my dad or my granddad would have been at my age, right? And by the way, you see a similar decline in the level of testosterone levels, so men have approximately half as much testosterone as they did 40 years ago. And you look at those two things and you think to yourself, okay, clearly something unnatural is happening because this has happened way too quickly for it not to be a function of something that is man-made. And you start looking around yourself, you say, okay, what might be the cause of it? And actually there's um, Dr. Shana Swan recently launched a book called Countdown where she talks about the sperm count declines and some hypotheses on why this is happening. Part of the reason, I mean, this was picked up by Joe Rogan and a number of others. And part of the reason why it got so much airtime is there's a theory that penis sizes may be getting smaller as a result of the chemicals that were exposed. And if you want men's attention for anything, you tell them their penis might get smaller and you will have their full attention, so to speak. I, I'm fully with you, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Please tell me yeah. everything I need to know. <laughs> Go on, please. <laughs> okay. And so I will tell you. My conspiracy theories in a minute, but I will start with the more scientifically validated evidence. In particular, anything, any sort of hormone or chemical that is endocrine disrupting, so phthalates, for example, which you find in a lot of plastics, are known to have negative effects on our health. They can be carcinogenic. They can lead to types of cancer. They can, I mean, phthalates can do... The most important thing to know is phthalates are very bad for you and they're known as forever chemicals because they can stay with you forever. There's even talk about forever chemicals being passed on to your kids, right? So in a world in which you have too much chemical exposure that may even be passed on to your kids. And so where are these coming from? Well, take a look, you know, the walls around you are painted with a paint, right? When you step into the shower, the shower curtain has been treated with all kinds of chemicals. When you get a receipt from an ATM, that has been covered by all the ink that comes from the banknotes and the various chemicals that have been accumulated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here, I got, I got mine too, just to make sure that I get as many 
you know, as much DNA damage as possible. And then you think about, okay, the food that I'm eating, the water, the drinks that I'm drinking, well, guess what? Food gets treated with pesticides and herbicides, right? And this then comes into the food that we're eating. And then you think about the laundry detergents that gets onto the clothes that we are wearing all day, treated with chemicals. And so this is very scientifically validated, and I'll, I'll manifest something else in a moment. This is very validated, and I used to make fun of people who I would call hippy-dippy, right, for wanting to be organic everything and so on, and I'd kind of roll my eyes. I am now that person. I only shop at Whole Foods. I go organic, you know, fragrance-free, chemical-free, all this stuff, because the evidence is so clear that something wrong is going on with the chemicals we're exposed to. And what is shocking to me in the US, which is a very unregulated country relative to the rest of the world, there is no concerted effort to prevent these chemicals from entering into our products. Every product should be tested for these kinds of endocrine disruptors. And this should be something that you get the same way you get calorie counts. You should know chemical counts. And so I'm a believer that we need to start a campaign called SOS, save our sperm. Do I already own the URL for it? Maybe. Maybe. And so I think that there can be, should be, and will be a campaign against this, but it's going to take time because people just don't really know this stuff is harmful. So I will transition from the more scientifically validated evidence to my own pet conspiracy theory. Oh yeah. Give it to us. Oh, yeah. Okay. Imagine a world where you are surrounded by cellular reception. Take a look at these things, right? Where, where do you keep your phone? You keep it in your pocket. You keep it by your bed. You sleep next to it, right? You think about, okay, it's got Bluetooth. It's got Wi-Fi. It's got 3G, 5G, 4G, however many Gs you want. It's pinging everything around you all the time. How on earth is it possible that this is not even slightly bad for us? And again, I will be very clear here. This is a pet conspiracy theory. I personally believe that, A, the increase in cancer rates over time is in part due to the cell phone exposures that we have. And then, B, I think that just as cigarettes had a ton of studies funded showing that they weren't that bad for your health, right? I don't like to use the phrase big anything because you sound like a nut job, right? But big cigarette didn't want you to know that they actually were pretty bad for you. They funded a ton of studies showing that they were fine. Coca-Cola did the same thing with our soft drinks. I think the same is happening with cell phone radiation. It's not a massive leap of faith to think that, that these things that are emitting, you know, radio frequencies 24-7 might not be good for us. So I personally am convinced that this is, this is bad for us. And I think that it's part of why, you know, people are getting sicker over time. I want to just dive a little bit deeper into, boy, I don't know that I want to open up this Pandora's box, but I think that I am. <laughs> okay. Because clearly we have a lot of ground to cover. You know, there are some people who purport that these chemicals, these phthalates, the pesticides, the herbicides, the BHT, mm -hmm. the DDT, the, I mean, we could have a million different acronyms, the cell phone yeah. radiation, the 5G, all the things are yeah. done knowing that this is sort of like some eugenics initiatives and that there are some people on the planet who may or may not want to engage in some population control. I don't know that I want to dive down that rabbit hole per se, but is there a concern for you? Caleb and your colleagues in your company that there could be a rampant sterilization of humanity in the next 30, 40, 50 years. And is that part of the reason why you started this company to hopefully continue the ability for us to 
proliferate the human species yeah. or is that is that too heavy handed and is that yeah. that not really a concern for you i'm, I'm yeah. curious the long tail for you with this conversation there's a lot of interesting topics within it. I'll, I will start by actually touching on what you were you were saying before, kind of this idea if there's a worldwide conspiracy theory. And, and the reason I actually feel qualified to talk about this is because I am part of that conspiracy theory. I spent two years working at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland. People know Geneva for a lot of reasons. Great trains, great chocolate, banking privacy, right? It's a, it's a very discreet, private country. I loved living there. And the organization that I work for organizes Davos. Davos is known for being kind of the most secretive, the most elitist in a way, right? Difficult to access conference in the world and the leading, you know, heads of state and CEOs from around the world will fly in to this mountainous town in Switzerland to attend Davos for a few days. So as one of the organizers, I attended for a couple of years. And what I learned is something very simple. There is no grand malicious conspiracy theory. It's much more banal than that. It is that people are just following their own incentives and when everyone follows their own incentives, you end up with what are effectively externalities. I mean, nobody is saying, I want to go out and poison the world with my chemicals, right? I don't think there's a single person who's saying, I want, you know, I want to sterilize the world. But I think it is simply a byproduct of the fact that companies don't get measured on this. They don't get negative press around it, right? There's no kind of reporting requirements. There's no regulatory requirements. And so it's just not something you prioritize. So my view has been, even at these elite, you know, closed off conversations. And I, I've been in conversations with heads of state, with some of the leading CEOs in the world, and they're talking about the same things that the rest of us are talking about, just maybe at a higher or a bigger level. I don't think there's a worldwide conspiracy theory. So I want to say that at least having had some exposure to it over the past few years of my life. And then when it comes to, you know, are we reaching a sterilization? So there's a word that I like, which gets overused or overdramatized, but it's the word spermageddon. It is the idea that if you extrapolate, and I, I will make some more scientific points after this. <laughs> if, you, if you just take the line and make it longer, if you extrapolate the decline in sperm counts and concentrations from the past 40 years and you extend that over the next 40 to 50 years, we will eventually reach what's known as sperm count zero, right? A world in which men are not producing sperm anymore. Now, the reality is things don't, you know, things don't work that cleanly. It's unlikely that we as a species would ever stop producing sperm. Uh, scientific advances would be such that, you know, eventually we'll, something called gametogenesis, where you can basically create sperm out of skin cells. I mean, that's a whole other topic. I know it's not that far away, believe me. And my point here is there is a very meaningful decline it's unlikely that we as a species will be unable to reproduce anytime soon, but it is worrisome, right? It's worrisome when you look at the trends. And for me, it's worrisome because I'm thinking, well, something is clearly going wrong for this to be happening. So how can we stop it? How can we prevent it? How can we slow down that decline? And that I think is where we should be focusing our efforts. I don't think there is, you know, I, I don't think there is eugenics, at least certainly not on a grand scale or certainly not on something that would be talked about openly. I'm sure there are some extremely racist people out there. And, and you know, let's, let's also be honest. We are overpopulated as an earth, right? It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we were less people. I don't think anybody anytime soon is going to say we need to genocide, you know, a certain percentage of the population in order to do so. One of the things I was thinking of as you were sharing this and also knowing that you believe that IVF could be the norm, right? In the future, yeah. it made me think about The Handmaid's Tale, you know? Because like when you hear some of these things, yes. at first you're like, oh, that's crazy because I know plenty of people who are not struggling with fertility. and But then you see 
and think about these things. And it doesn't seem that far-fetched. And for those that have read The Handmaid's Tale, have watched the show, it's a huge focus of it. Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of people have also said that when they watch that show or read that book, they feel horrified by the state of the world. Now, granted, the conditions of that are, are also based around an extremist religion and, you know, having children is like a, a huge reason for it and what they're doing with the kids and all of that. But, but I suppose it could come to a point where it's actually rare that people are able to have children. Is that something mm-hmm. that you believe? Is it going to get that extreme? Here's what I, here's what I believe will happen. And I say this with a, with a reasonable degree of confidence. Take a look at countries like Denmark. Take a look at countries that subsidize IVF for their populations. The United Arab Emirates does this, as do other countries. In Denmark, about one in 10 babies is now born through IVF. Now, why is that? So one, if it is that you're not paying a ton out of pocket, right? We all know that IVF is fairly expensive and that's the main, the main hurdle to people doing it. But there's a secondary benefit that people overlook. When you're using IVF, you can do pre-genetic screening or pre-genetic diagnosis, some form of genetic testing to screen out embryos that are going to have negative genetic traits, right? So you can't screen for Down syndrome, but there are a number of very severe diseases, which, you know, any parent would not want their child to have that you can screen those embryos for. And so now you are more likely to have a healthy baby. And when you ask people, by the way, what do you want for your kids? What do you want for the pregnancy? That's the word they use always. I want a healthy pregnancy. Right. And that's the number one thing that they're thinking about. And so what this means is when people have the choice or the ability to do IVF, they are increasingly likely to use it. Now, pair that with two other things. The first is the ongoing delay in people choosing to have kids, which means more people will need to do IVF. Right. It's no longer they're doing it because they can, but because they need to. And then you pair that with what we as a company are doing, and we're making sperm freezing accessible, we're making it easy, we're making it affordable, you do it from the comfort of your own home, right? As egg freezing is becoming more normalized, we are eventually, the world where we're moving to is where two things happen. The first is more and more men and women freeze their gametes, freeze their sperm or their eggs, right? And they do this, they do this at a younger age, right? And the world that I see is one where men are doing this, you know, in their early 20s, right? Before you go off to college, you just freeze your sperm before you get into the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And and frankly, I think parents will buy this for their kids. I really do, right? We all know it'll be, you know, take again, assume heterosexual parents, but it'll be the mom who buys the kit. She gives it to the dad. The dad sits the son down and is like, son, when I was your age, you know, I had a drink or two when I was in college and uh, I want to make sure that uh, your mom and I can have grandkids, right? I see it. I have Arab parents. They want one thing for me and one thing alone, which is grandkids, right? Think about other communities, Jewish communities, Indian communities. I mean, these are communities that really value building families and grandkids and being as fertile as possible. So you take the increase in the need for IVF. You take how much easier it is becoming for people to freeze their gametes when they're young and healthy, right? And you factor in that people will actually have a preference to use IVF as it becomes more affordable and accessible because they can do this kind of genetic screening. And it is inevitable that IVF, we're going to move in the same direction of Denmark, where I think in the US, it's about 1% of kids are born through IVF. We will absolutely move closer and closer to that 10%. Now it creates all these secondary questions, right? Who has access to IVF? Who can afford IVF, right? At what point do you start screening for positive traits as opposed to screening out for negative traits, right? And then you get, then you get more into the eugenics question, right? How are you genetically manipulating the kids that you have, right? But it's very clear that we are moving in that direction already. That's fascinating. I mean, this whole sort of customizable genetic system that we might be moving into. I'm, 
Is it possible from a perspective of technology? I'm extremely ignorant to this, of course, but in what you know and what you've seen, Caleb, how customizable could this potentially get in the future? I mean, could it be that parents could say, I want my child to be a have the genetic traits to potentially become a world-class athlete, or I want them to have potentially a certain type of IQ. I mean, how many boxes on the checklist would be potentially available for something like this? I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'll I'll start by sharing an example from a professor at Harvard Business School who's kind of been an informal, you know, mentor over the past few years. Her name is Professor Deborah Spar, and she's very well versed in the world of fertility. She's done a ton of research there. She thinks a lot about the commercialization of fertility. And so I've met with her a few times, and one of the things that she shared that I thought was fascinating was that when couples go for donor sperm, like couples that can conceive, they want donor sperm, you could imagine a world in which they say, you know, I want tall, blonde, Viking-style kids. And by the way, there was actually a global shortage of Viking sperm at some point, because this is actually what people want the most because they have this kind of idealized version of what they want their kids to look like. So that's a whole weird thing that I'm not going to get into and I don't feel qualified to talk about. There's a lot of racial disparity when it comes to sperm donors, although we can all agree that, you know, the sperm of people who have red hair, I mean, you know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. (laughs) There is zero demand for ginger sperm anywhere in the world, fun fact. In fact, if you're a sperm donor and you have red hair, you will probably be denied because nobody wants your sperm. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. So where I am going with this is the research that Professor Spar did was that on average, and the example that she gave was a Jewish couple that, you know, they want to find a, a sperm donor who's also Jewish and meets them on several characteristics. But what she said was, interestingly, most parents don't want superhuman kids that are 10 times better than they are. I mean, better being a you know subjective term. They want kids who are like them, but a little bit better. You know, and she'd say, be like, so, you know, if, you know, I am a shorter guy, then I want a taller kid. I don't necessarily want a super tall kid. I want a taller kid, right? If I think I have a big nose, you know, I want a kid who's going to have a smaller nose, not a small one or even an average one, but one that is smaller than the one that I have. So they want kids that are basically going to be one step up from where they are, not at the top of the staircase. I thought that was always really fascinating because people want kids that look like them. And even when you're able to choose donor sperm, that narcissism still comes back because you love yourself and your significant other more than anyone else in the world. I just, I'm blown away simultaneously by the incredible demand and low supply of Viking sperm (laughs) and the global shunning of redheads. I, 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 I feel like I need to go on a deep, deep rabbit hole Google search about all this. Yeah. Yeah. Ginger sperm, you'll get all kinds of, I mean, you should look at my search history. (laughs) You can imagine. You can imagine. I want to go back, Kayla, to you you made a really funny point about men in their early 20s before they go off and do the sex, drugs, rock and roll in college that they freeze their sperm. But we've talked a lot about, you know, what can potentially damage sperm. We talked earlier about the phthalates, Mm -hmm. the pesticides Mm -hmm. in the food. But I want to talk about lifestyle because you brought up sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm -hmm separating fact from fiction. What are some things that men, you would recommend men start to wean themselves off of or avoid doing lifestyle wise? And what are some things that men should add in? I mean, what about sleep? What about drinking? What about drugs? Dive into all this separating what to avoid and what to do more of, please. 
When it comes to sperm improvement, there is good news and there is bad news. And the reason for this is because sperm is an excellent biomarker of your overall health. And so, in fact, I actually go through the process of testing my sperm every month, in part because I find it interesting, in part because it's enjoyable, and in part because I need to be using my company's own product so we can keep improving it. And so I've actually been able to track my sperm quality over time. And I know that during really stressful periods, like when we're fundraising from investors, my sperm quality goes down meaningfully because I have high stress, I'm drinking more coffee, I'm not sleeping as well. And I actually see that reflected in my sperm, which is interesting. And so the bad news is there's a limited number of things that you can do outside of classic lifestyle changes, which I'll come to in a second, you can take supplements. We offer a line of supplements. You know, CoQ10 is known to be good for your sperm. There's a number of antioxidants that are correlated with improved sperm quality, motility, morphology, and so on. And so that's something that you can and can do. And if you're, you know, if you're trying to conceive with your partner, probably should be. If nothing else, it's showing your partner that you're willing to invest in the healthy pregnancy as well. So that's kind of the bad news is there's a limited subset of things that you can do. The good news is, I mean, the, the same things that you would want to do to lead a healthy life are the same things that will improve your sperm quality. Sleeping seven to nine hours a night. Mediterranean diets are associated with positive sperm quality. You know, you don't want to you don't have too much coffee on a daily basis. You don't want to be drinking all the time. Obviously, if you're morbidly obese, then that's not going to be great for your sperm quality. And if you're sedentary, if you're not exercising, then that's also bad for your sperm quality. Then you get to some things, I mean, obviously doing, you know, heroin or LSD, you know, I think we can all safely assume is bad for your sperm. But interestingly, marijuana has actually had mixed studies, some suggesting it has a negative effect on your sperm, but some suggesting it has a positive effect on your sperm quality. And there was a pretty big study done at Harvard a few years back. And one of the researchers actually worked with us for a number of months and she was telling us that actually it might be positive for sperm count. So the jury is still out, but Good news is weed is probably not uh, significantly impacting your sperm health. May even be a good thing. I feel like there's a sub-segment of our listeners that are like, yeah, Kalen said it <laughs> yes. was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Going to the dispensary. Yeah. Myself included. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when we dig into sort of your, your backstory a little bit, Kalen, sure. you mentioned being involved in the World Economic Forum Davos, living in Geneva. Now you reside in Boston. You have this great company called Legacy that we've been talking about. Where is that transition? And for you, we always love to talk to our guests about what they're creating in the world and, and what their motivation yeah. and intention is. Mm -hmm. Why start this company? Is there a personal connection regarding fertility, regarding helping people? Like, What is for you, not just the company, but you as a human being, as the CEO, what is your core motivation and intention and why did you get into this business? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll start by saying it's not like I turned 13, hit puberty and suddenly thought to myself, how do I monetize this? I never expected, <laughs> I never expected that I would start a male fertility company, right? I, I don't think this is most children's childhood dream. I wanted to be a soccer player growing up, you know, so obviously still kind of playing with balls, I guess, just in a different direction. <laughs> But here's what happened. <laughs> Jason, you doing okay? <laughs> Dude, there's too many great one-liners. You're killing us. You're killing us in the best way. <laughs> if I do my job right, there's at least one or two sperm puns that I say with a straight face that nobody picks up on until later. That's how I'll know that I've succeeded. Have you said them yet? Or do we have to go back and listen? <laughs> I don't know. I might have. I might have. <laughs> 
Anyhow, so it all started in Tulsa, Oklahoma, an unlikely place for the glint in my eye, so to speak, to start this company. So I was a management consultant for a few years. I did primarily health and life sciences consulting. It's what I specialized in. I actually specialized in the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. I'm one of the few people on this planet who has read that thing, 700 pages from cover to cover, very dry reading. Anyhow, so we're driving to our client site. We make a Starbucks stop. And I jump in, I was the most junior person on the team. We were four, four guys. I jump in and I offer to pick up coffee and tea for everyone. So I come out, you know, those, those cardboard holders, you know, where the cup holders, right? So I've got four drinks in there, freshly brewed teas. And I say freshly brewed because tea is made with boiling hot water, you know, a couple of those and a couple of hot coffees. I think you can see where this is going. So I get in the car, I jump in the passenger seat. We're driving down the highway of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a car in front of us stops very suddenly which means that we have to stop very suddenly, which means that the the laws of inertia meant that the coffee and tea that I was holding right on my lap spilled all over my lap. And I actually, I only remember two things. What's, what's funny is I only remember two things. I remember, first of all, that moment where the cups were leaning and the lids were coming off and there was kind of like a Simpson style, like, uh-oh. And then the second thing I remember is seeing it spill all over my lap right before the pain hit. And so I got second degree burns. It's so thankfully second degree burns heal, but I was hospitalized. It took about a month, a month and a half till I could start wearing normal pants again. I jumped out of the car. Here's, here's kind of the funny part in retrospect, if you're not the person to whom this is happening to. I'm wearing a full suit and tie. I am looking spiffy, my friends. I jump out of the car. I rip my pants off because the fabric of the suit was absorbing the scalding hot liquid right? And so I am by the side of the road, dress shoes kicked to the side, pants thrown off wherever, otherwise fully suit and booted, right? Like shirt, tie, blazer, everything else, grabbing my crotch, right? Holding my boxers away from my body. Because again, that was also scalding hot. I had enough presence of mind not to take my underwear off by the side of the road. But my colleagues later told me that about 10 or 11 cars stopped and lined up to watch the strange half-clad man grabbing his crotch and yelling. So there, of course, are no, there wasn't a burn center. Tulsa, Oklahoma is a relatively small city. We had to go to a local ER. America being America, the first question they asked was whether I had insurance. And I was like, I don't care about insurance. Just give me morphine. Had to pull out my insurance information before they would treat me. Anyway, so that all happened. And, you know, I think like anyone who's had scalding hot liquids anywhere near their genitals, you know, I think you you kind of have this moment where you say to yourself, like, you know, thank, first of all, thank God that wasn't worse, huh? Thank God that did not cause any permanent damage, right? A month and a half of healing is fine as long as things go back to the way they were. And it was around this time that uh, I was moving to, I was moving to Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually, I was moving to Boston. And I was starting a master's program and a classmate of mine told us a story about freezing his sperm before starting chemotherapy. And he explained that his doctor recommended chemotherapy is very harmful to your fertility. It's just radiation going into your body. And he explained that, you know, doctors recommend that you bank your sperm before starting chemo. So I had had this accident a couple of months prior, right? I had only just finished healing, right? He's telling me the story and literally just a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, you know, I kind of looked at him like, can anyone do this? Do I need permission? I felt like I needed permission from someone. I don't know why, right? He's like, no, no, just, you know, find a local sperm bank. And so that's what I did. So I went to the local sperm bank in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, For those of you who know Cambridge, it's right next to my favorite Chinese restaurant, The Dumpling House. So very sensual vibes, both going in and coming out of that clinic. 
went through the experience and everything about it. It's like I walked in and I actually still remember this. There was a cute receptionist. And I thought to myself, I'm like, I can't make any comments here. She knows that I'm here to freeze my sperm. She knows what I'm here to do, right? They handed me what they call the specimen cup. They only ever refer to your sperm sample as the specimen, which I've always found gross. They give you a list of questions to answer, right? Like how many SCDs have you had? I'm like, it's like Pokemon. You got to catch them all, right? And then they ask you questions like, you know, why are you here? Are you here because you have cancer? Are you here because you're getting a vasectomy? Or are you here because you're transitioning to become a woman? And I said, I don't think any of the three, like, I just think this is a good idea. And they looked at me like I was the weird one. So they hand you the cup, they escort you to a room. And the room, of course, you don't want to touch anything in there, right? There's an array of pornographic materials. You, of course, don't want to touch any of the magazines. There's DVDs, right? Like organized by ethnicity preferences, right? There's a black leather couch. You turn off the light because you're trying to create an ambiance in the room. But then there's light streaming in from outdoors at the, you know, at the very base of the door. You can hear people laughing and talking outside. And you have about 10 minutes to produce the sample because someone needs to use the room after you. So I did my thing. It was nine minutes more than I needed. And I came out of that thinking to myself, this was maybe the most awkward experience that I have had in my life. And I think you have both learned. I'm not an awkward guy. I'm very comfortable talking about this stuff. Like this was so profoundly awkward. But at the same time, I just preserved my ability to have kids for the rest of my life. How beautiful and profound is that? Like I said, I have always wanted to be a husband and a father. Even when I was in college, I used to have an Evernote folder with articles that had tips on how to be a good parent. Like, I don't want to be a dad. I want to be an awesome dad. And I absolutely want my kid to look just like me because I am narcissistic fuck just like everyone else on this planet. And so this is right around the time companies like Roman and Hims and this kind of were pioneering this concept of at home consumer healthcare, And it just became so abundantly clear to me. Like I had a moment of clarity. It's like the Lord himself, you know, parted the clouds and shone down on me and said, Habibi, you will have DJ Khaled as an investor in three years. But more importantly, you need to start a company about this because if you can create a product that is affordable and accessible and convenient and with a good experience, then this will be a no brainer for every guy. And so that was the spark that set the whole thing off. And it became, honestly, I became... I don't like the word obsessed, but I I became fixated on this idea. And this is actually where the joke about Sperm King started. My friends would be like, oh, the Sperm King's coming to tell us all about his his idea again. And I was was there researching sperm, studying sperm, flying around the world to meet advisors. One of our advisors is at the University of Sheffield. I flew to London for two days just to meet with a guy to learn more about sperm. And just the more I dug into it, the more it became so obvious to me. One, this is going to be a massive multi-billion dollar industry. Two, this is going to be a no-brainer for every man. And three, if I don't do it, then someone else will. So it was late 2017, and here was the final piece of the puzzle. Late 2017, I've been thinking about this idea for a couple of years now. I'm working in Geneva, and the study comes out, and this is a study that I referenced earlier, showing that sperm counts and sperm concentrations had declined by 50 to 60%. Dr. Shana Swan, the author I mentioned earlier, was the lead author on the study, or I think she was the PI. And at that moment, I said, this is it. So at that point, I started laying the groundwork. A few months later, I sat my boss down. I turned down a very lucrative promotion, told him, hey, I'm quitting the Davos business to go into the sperm business. He said, okay. And that was it. 
I quit my job. I left the city. I left everything behind. I made the move to Boston. I started the company. And this has been, and what's so interesting about what we do is most companies pivot in the early days. Their ideas change, right? They have a broad thesis around what's going to happen in the world. I have always said since day one, and it's funny, when I look at my pitch decks from four years ago, before I even started working full-time on the company, they are almost identical to what the narrative is today. It is, we're going to make it so easy and so affordable and so convenient that it is going to be a no-brainer for every man to test and freeze his sperm. Well, this leads me to a question that I have after that wonderful story is why do you want to be a father so badly? Like personally, how has that journey been for you, especially because you're thinking about it literally every day, personally and professionally? Wow. Asking the tough questions, Whitney. It's funny because I both know that I want to be a dad and I'm also terrified of being a dad. And I think that's extremely common for anyone who's thinking about being a parent, because I sleep eight hours a night. I have a very happy existence, (laughs) right? I take advantage of my free time, of which I have a decent amount considering what I do. And I know that the second that I have kids, that's going to change. But I have always felt like bringing a child into this world and instilling them and imbuing them with kind of the values that you want to see in the world, I think is one of the most beautiful things that you can do. And I think that you know, building a beautiful family that will be around as you get older and to watch your kids grow up over time. And I'm saying this not from my own experience, but from what everyone has told me, like there's nothing more special that that makes you feel that, that, that sense of responsibility to the world than when you have a little kid who's yours and who you need to protect and raise and take care of. And, and you really just want kids who are going to live a better life than you have had and basically be a better person than you have had. And I think about, the last thing I'll say here is, you know, So I grew up between Lebanon and Canada. So we're Palestinian by origin, largely we're in Lebanon. And we grew up not particularly well off as a family, probably in like the lower middle. I mean, we were never starving, but we were, you know, we were certainly not well off. When I was four years old, my dad left Lebanon and moved to Vietnam to start his own company. And it's actually, it's surprisingly common. I know know it sounds quite shocking. It's surprisingly common for the Lebanese because there's not that many economic opportunities at home. It's very common to have a dad who's, usually it's the dad who's gone to another country, built a business there and sends money back home to the family. My dad's been living in Vietnam for 25 years, right? And so the sacrifices that he made to be able to provide to us, to send us to the best private school in Lebanon so that my brother and I could go to the schools that we did, right? I mean, that's a huge sacrifice that he did that he made. And my mom as well, she had a full-time job. She had a career as a healthcare executive. She left her job because my brother and I were both very difficult kids. And she left her job to basically take care of us and raise us and make sure that we turned out okay. You know, and and I think about the sacrifices that my parents made to make sure that we had a better life than they had. And, And I think there's something very beautiful within that. That's, I think, where it comes from. But to be clear, I'm still terrified of the prospect of being a dad. Fair enough. I mean, I think about very similar things because I value my sleep and freedom and flexibility and all of those things that don't seem to go hand in hand with parenthood. But the other part of my question, given how focused you are on not just the present state of things, but the future state, something that I've heard from some people who have chosen not to have children or even friends of mine who have young children who have admittedly shared with me some regrets or fears that they made a mistake by having kids because they're terrified of what will happen in their lifetimes. And that's something I think about too, is, Mm -hmm. you know, given that I'm mostly on the fence about it, not super important to me right now, Mm -hmm. 
like the kind of cons to having a child is like, well, look at what's going on with the environment. And so many people are already going to be impacted by it in ways that we don't even fully know yet. So to bring another child in to start another life gives me pause. I'm curious, does that come up for you or or have you come across data that's actually showing that it's a little bit more hopeful? Yeah. Yes. The short answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. For a population to maintain its size, you need to have approximately 2.1 babies per woman. And this is because some children will pass away at a very young age. But so for your population to remain constant, you need about 2.1 babies per woman. That's known as the replacement birth rate. When you look at the birth rate off you know, what I'll call developed countries, industrialized countries, you look at the US, you look at Western Europe, those birth rates have consistently and dramatically gone down. And so here's where there's actually interesting racial undertones that I know does worry some folks in the US and who consider it a matter of national security. The birth rate for white Americans in the US is something like 1.5 or 1.6 babies per woman. The overall birth rate, my stats are going to be a little bit off, but the overall birth rate is somewhere around the two range. I think it's a little bit below, but that is actually because the Latinx community has children at a higher rate than kind of white Americans. And so you have these quickly shifting demographics that some individuals at the government level consider like a demographic time bomb. Right. Again, I obviously disagree with this, but this is but these are the views at some of the higher levels. And then you look at the rest of the world. The birth rates in Japan, in South Korea, I think in both cases are below 1.5 babies per woman. Even in industrialized countries like Germany, I think it's also in like the 1.5, 1.6 range. The same is true across almost every industrialized country in the world. And so population sizes are shrinking. If you take a look at Nigeria, one of the fastest growing countries in the world, and China, which historically has limited birth rates very deliberately, if they continue on their current growth trajectory and decline trajectory respectively, by the end of the century, Nigeria will have a larger population than China, which is wild when you think about it. In my head, China is just massive and Nigeria is a mid-sized country, right? But this is the power of birth rates that compound over time. So this to me is fascinating because kind of the global South, which has much higher birth rates, is going to become an increasingly large percentage of the world. And those less developed countries, including the country that I grew up in, are countries that have much lower rates of carbon emissions, right? Have much Basically are causing less damage to the world. So each person on average is damaging the world less. And in countries where there is more damage to the world in the industrialized countries, the birth rates are going down significantly over time. And so I think it's already happening. And, and a, big, a big part of this reason is this concept of readiness. Um, because readiness, especially in the US, right? Readiness is not just about being emotionally or psychologically ready. It is about being able to pay for childcare, for healthcare, for the latest strollers. And by the way, in the South end of Boston, there is like, you know, there's like a certain, I forget the name, but there's like the prestige stroller, you know, like this is the stroller that you get if you really love your kids. And it's like $1,500, right? And then of course you can't just send them to public school because you want your kids to go to the best schools. You're going to send them to private school, right? And I think someone said that it costs you about a million dollars to have a kid. And so in a world where there's more economic inequality, where people are more financially constrained, they feel less ready to have kids plain and simple. They don't feel like they can afford it. And so I will add one more layer to what I said earlier, which is men describe parenthood as an inevitability. But the second part of it is they say, I don't want to do it until I feel financially ready. Yeah, it's an interesting 
conversation when you talk about readiness, Caleb, because if I reflect on my upbringing, as you mentioned, growing up in Lebanon, I grew up in Detroit, which as an aside, has some of the most incredible Lebanese food. I grew up just eating Lebanese food. Dearborn, Michigan should just about secede from the United States and join the Middle East. I've actually had the best Arabic food. So I spent about nine months in Detroit on a project. I was in the Rensen for about nine months. Uh, Pete Buttigieg and I actually, fun fact, were there at the same time. You know, just saying. And I actually had, I visited Dearborn a couple of times. I'm actually going to be in Dearborn in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. And the the Arabic food was spectacular. Yes. I grew up eating just a <laughs> megalithic amount of incredible, not just restaurant, but nice. friends of mine and like home cooked Lebanese nice. food. <laughs> yes. Come on. So as an aside, yeah. growing up and eating that wonderful <laughs> food, I also grew up in a, you know, a lower income family raised by a single mother. And, you know, I think for me, there's this sort of, subconscious fear, we talk about fears of fatherhood, of Mm. not being able to provide the way that I want to provide because of the cost of raising a child in our world right now. And then it's like this balance of if I'm working really, really hard with my two businesses, you know, running two businesses, trying to put food on the table, trying to, mm-hmm. you know, provide the best life for my child. But if I'm not physically present for my child while trying to economically provide, then it kind of feels like this, this perpetuation of this old school masculinity I, I observed in my yeah. family, where the men were constantly working themselves to the bone in a blue collar Detroit yeah. family, but they weren't physically or emotionally present mm-hmm. for their children. I don't want to repeat that pattern, right? So so that's sort of my conundrum is, yeah, I don't want to sacrifice the ability to financially provide for my ability to be physically and emotionally present for my child. That's a big hang up for me. Yeah, I completely understand that. And as you're talking, what I'm thinking of is the word masculinity. And the reason for this is the definition of masculinity is evolving very quickly. Maybe it's because everyone has lower testosterone and sperm counts. I don't know. But the reality is what it means to be a man at a societal level has shifted. And actually, I'm thinking about a professor I mentioned earlier at HBS, Deborah Spar, just released a book called Work, Mate, Marry, Love that I loved, couldn't put down. And it is all about the way that gender dynamics and kind of the women's place in the household versus the man's place in the household have shifted as a result of technological advances. So it's basically if you took Sapiens and applied it to reproduction and family planning, super interesting book. But one of the things that she writes about and one of the things that we're seeing very clearly is what it means to be a man today is very different than even a few decades ago. And you think about what used to be the nuclear family, right? A mom and a dad and two and a half kids. And you have the white picket fence and you have the house. First of all, ain't nobody living in houses anymore. Okay. We can't afford it, right? Nobody's got a white picket fence, right? Maybe they got some barbed wire, but even what it means to have a family has changed, right? I mean, we've seen, I see in my, in my line of work, single parents who want to, you know, single moms who want to raise kids, sometimes single dads who want to have kids. We see men in same-sex relationships, women in same-sex relationships. We have a lot of transgender women who are transitioning. They're beginning the process of transitioning and the way that they think, I mean, their fertility journey is inherently more complex, you know, and, and, and what it means to have a family today is so much more broad and varied than what it was a few decades ago. And I think part of that is because what it means to be a man is no longer the the man is the breadwinner, right? And provides for the family. The woman stays at home and takes care of the kids. And we see this reflected in the way that, you know, what people will sometimes call like power couples, right? Like two working couples where 
again, I'm assuming heterosexual couple here, right? But could apply to any couple. Female partners working, male partners working, and they're trading off different domestic responsibilities, right? You hear sometimes about the the house spouse, you know, there's sometimes there's men who prefer to stay at home and take care of the kids. And this is just evolving very quickly. And I, I do genuinely believe, and I think one of the reasons that my company will succeed is because of what's happening societally, which is men want to be more involved dads. Men want to be more involved in the family planning journey. Men want to be equal partners with their partner, whoever that partner is. And the final thought I have here is when you look at what happened during COVID for people who already had kids and for men in particular, who typically would have been in the workplace, the number of men we've spoken to who've said, when I was working at home, I saw my son's first steps, right? I saw my daughter's laughs. Like I got to come over and cuddle her for five minutes in the day because I missed her. I don't ever want to give that up again, right? And I think COVID is really just accelerating this idea that like men really want to be dads and want to be good dads and they want to be equal partners. And I, I think that's beautiful. And I think it's happening already. And I think COVID just accelerated all of this. And as we shift more and more towards work from home, it's also going to be parent from home, work from home, love from home. So based on Jason's facial expressions, I feel like you're shifting how he's feeling about all this. <laughs> he's <laughs> I like, don't know. I'm going to go have kids right now, <laughs> honey. Clock's ticking. <laughs> Clock's ticking. I think uh, his girlfriend would be thrilled about that. Yep. So she's, oh, she's going to be thanking you. <laughs> Jason, if you've got good genes, then man, you got to pass them on. I mean, you know, again, grandma had babies at almost 46. I feel like the good diet and my thing is stress, though. Yeah. You know, it's like it's interesting that you talked, yeah. Caleb, about your monthly testing and when you're stressed and you're yeah. in a funding round. It's interesting, right? Because you're, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, you have this company. We know generally the rigors of running a company is not yeah. for everyone. Oh, it you know, sucks. So it's hard, it's right? Worst. It's debilitating. I mean, we've had episodes rather here on the podcast about mm. sort of the unspoken mental health issues that are happening with entrepreneurs and CEOs in Silicon Valley. And how many mental yeah. health issues and how many people are struggling with depression, chronic anxiety? They don't talk about it publicly, but mm -hmm. it's a very real thing. And, and so it's interesting. I, I feel like you're almost like trying to take your own advice, right? And it's got to be hard, though. You're running this company. And at the same time, you want to yeah. be an example of practicing what you preach. But how the hell do you do that when you're you know, doing a million dollar seed round and trying to run this business? I mean, it's got to be tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do I do that? I have a very simple life mantra. Sleep well and hydrate. I have been sleeping eight hours a night for the last, uh, basically all my life. I drink a ton of water and I honestly feel like this addresses 80% of issues. If I'm in a bad mood. I go to sleep. I wake up. I feel fine. I also have a terrible memory, which I think helps because I just forget all of the bad things that happened to me. <laughs> but it's interesting. When I started the company, I'm a very happy person by nature. Pretty easygoing. You know, I'm not an anxious person. But it was after I started Legacy that I started to feel this low-grade anxiety, this little voice being like, you should work a little bit more. You know, what about that email you forgot to send? How about you get up? Even though it's midnight, get up and go send that email. And that was new to me. And it's only more recently that it's gone down. And the big shift for me has been, you know, I started the company by myself. I was just a guy in Cambridge, you know, at a coffee shop with a laptop and a privacy screen for obvious reasons, because I'm looking at sperm all day. And now we're about 30 people. We've raised around $20 million. We have some phenomenal investors. You know, we're about to go out and raise another round of funding soon. The company's doing pretty well. You know, we grew by 7x last year. We're going to grow 5x this year. I mean, so this stuff is reassuring. But more importantly is I now have a team of about 30. 
I've been able to, we call it giving away your Legos. I've been able to give away most of my Legos. And it's kind of this concept. And it was, it was a great article written by an early Facebook employee who became a senior executive. And she talked about how when you're playing with a bunch of kids and there's a pile of Legos and you start building something and you feel protective of it, you know, it's okay to give it up because there's a million more Legos and a million more bigger, cooler things that you can build. And it's this concept of as you grow and scale, you need to grow and scale with the company as well. You need to give away your Legos. You need to delegate almost everything that you're doing. I used to write our blog posts, right? Three years ago, I would write, you know, on the dot every week, I would write a four to 600 word or six, 800 word blog post. I obviously don't do that anymore. You know, there's a lot of day-to-day stuff that I don't, don't do anymore. So I've, I've been able to hand over most responsibilities. I have a phenomenal number two. I have an EA who helps to keep track of my schedule, my calendar. And so I'm able to focus on the highest leverage stuff. And it has only been at that point when it felt like I had a team that was so strong around me that risks no longer felt existential. And that's the point at which I think the anxiety kind of started to go down because when we were raising our series A round of funding, which we did about this time last year, we were six people right? If I was sick or if I was having a down month or, you know, someone quit or whatever, that is an existential risk to the company. When you're 30 people, you know, and everyone's happy and things are going well, it's not as existential. I'm sure this will change maybe even in the near future, but that is something I am not manifesting. I did a little bit of research prior to getting on this podcast with you, Caleb, and Mm -hmm. I was like, I want to know the origin of this man's name and what came up on Google. And I'm curious if this is accurate because you're the one who has this name. What came <laughs> yeah. up on Google is fascinating to me, given the subject nature of everything we've covered today, which is mm-hmm. about life, love, extending our lifespans, human consciousness. I mean, there, there's so many wonderful aspects to this conversation. But what came up on Google was the name Khalid is of Arabic origin and the meaning is eternal life or immortal How wonderful. I just thought that was so fascinating, giving the subject matter. So I had a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, Ronald Heifetz, and he taught a class on adaptive leadership. And he taught us, among many other things, he taught us that basically everything you do has a reason behind it. And that reason is almost always subconscious. The decisions you make that you say, oh, no, this just was happenstance. It's like, usually it's not. Because you are carrying the waters that your the generations before you have carried. And you are actually, when you're talking to someone, you're not just having a direct conversation. You are having a mental conversation, the physical conversation. There's the idea of who the person is, the idea of who you are. And so you're talking at all these different levels and all of this is in your subconscious. So it feels very poignant that someone whose name means eternal or immortal or eternal life has started a company called Legacy. Right. And I could ascribe it to mere coincidence, but maybe this is what I was meant to do since the day I was born. Maybe my childhood dream should have been starting legacy. I'll take you a step further because someone pointed this out to me recently. I grew up in the fertile crescent of the world. You know, you remember high school, the Tigris and the Euphrates? I lived in the fertile crescent. So the eternal immortal being from the fertile crescent is here on your podcast today. It's wonderful. I mean, there's so many layers to that. I mean, really, on a metaphysical level, we're we're kind of joking about it, but it really is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. You know, and and to get into maybe a subject that is a little bit off topic, but related to this, do you believe that we have free will or do you believe in predestiny and the illusion of free will? Or is it a combination of both, which is kind of even more confusing? (laughs) 
so it's not a topic I'm qualified to speak about, although I will happily speak about it anyway. And I actually, I took a couple of philosophy classes in undergrad. I was at McGill. And here's where I landed on this. I think that humans are effectively complex algorithms. And I think it's an algorithm that shifts all the time. But in theory, you give the same person the same input at the same point in their lives, you should get the same output every time. And I will tell you a small anecdote that I found kind of funny, which is when I lived, I lived in Canada for a while and I was hanging out late night with one of my colleagues and we had gone out the night before. So we were a starting class of six or seven people. We went out, we drank a ton. I mean, that was the sex, drugs, rock and roll. I remembered nothing from the previous night. I'm not proud of that, right? But I basically could not remember a single thing. And what's funny is my friend at the time had opened up about some relationship issues she had been having. And I gave her basically three pieces of advice. The next day, it's evening time, we're working the office late, and she brings up the same question. And she asks me, you know, she's like, oh, so what do you think? And she was doing this on purpose. So I launch in, didn't remember this at all. I told her the exact same three pieces of advice. And she's like, I knew you were going to say that. I recorded you yesterday. Here's the recording of you saying it. And it was word for word, intonation for intonation. Like I was just saying the exact same thing. And it makes sense, right? Because from one day to the next, I'm not a fundamentally different person. I bring the same experiences, perspective, mindset, education, spirituality, whatever that I do the following day. And so I actually don't think we really have free will per se. I think that we are born into the genes that we are born. We are born into the environment that we are born into. And this just keeps updating the algorithm. And so you can focus on putting yourself in environments where, you know, you want to achieve better outcomes, but your ability and desire to do so is largely predetermined by your genes and your upbringing. So that is, you know, maybe a little bit more philosophical than I typically talk about in these podcasts, but that's where I'm at. That's wonderful. No, I feel like we have gone to so many wonderful categories and subject matters with you today. And, and thank you for playing along. Thank you for being just so willing and open to have this tennis match, this three-way tennis match. And for you, dear listener, if you want to dive more into this wonderful company that Caleb is running, again, it's Legacy. You can find them at givelegacy.com. You'll find all kinds of great information about their storage, their supplements, they have expert advice, you can schedule a conversation. They have a gorgeous like, I mean, looking at the sperm collection kit, I kind of want to get it just because it looks so sexy. And I mean, it's a you guys went all out with the packaging. It's absolutely gorgeous. The name sperm collection kit, though, is like, pretty yeah. fun. If you think oh, yeah. about it, like <laughs> we just call it the legacy kit, the kit. <laughs> the kit. I mean, but Jason, yeah. do you I just want to co collect your sperm? Or you're like, you just want to no, I'm just saying put the it in the window to look at. <laughs> no, the branding is so amazing. It makes me want to just get the kit and do the thing. And also, being that I'm in my mid-40s now, look at how healthy my sperm is. I am very, very curious. So if you, dear listener, are curious or you have a partner that may want to do this, again, we'll have all the links in our show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll link to uh, Caleb's Twitter because you've got some really fun tweets. Been following you on Twitter. And you know what? I actually had two questions just kind of magically pop into my brain, which <laughs> as an aside, 
I sometimes pontificate existentially on mm. what are thoughts and where do they come from. And I know we could get into like the nature of neurochemicals and synapses and electrical charges in the brain, but I really do wonder sometimes on a metaphysical or spiritual level, what are thoughts and where mm. do they come from? Mm. Terence McKenna and some other philosophers had had great ideas about a unified field theory or a noosphere of consciousness mm. that consciousness just is and we are akin to antenna that are receiving thoughts and wow. ideas. Wow. And it's just about who actualizes those ideas in the world and who doesn't. Anyway, that's kind of like a random wavering. The two questions that I had, Caleb, one, this is maybe a bit graphic, but I, it's a curiosity. <laughs> I have noticed over the years for me that Uh-oh. the where the, is this sentence going <laughs> <laughs> size doesn't matter no it's it's although we did by the way we never got no. back to the penis shrinkage you <laughs> dropped that bomb sizes. like 45 minutes ago and we never got into <laughs> shrinking penises so let me put a pin in that penis Ooh. ouch <laughs> i've noticed over the years that depending on again what's happening in my life the viscosity of my semen will change I will notice mm -hmm. that like, oh, it's thinner sometimes than others, thicker sometimes than others. The color yeah. will change. What is that all about? Yeah, it's actually a good question. And, and believe it or not, one of our most visited blog posts is about watery semen. So a lot of it actually comes down to diet. In general, you don't have to worry. I mean, I have to clarify, there's not medical advice. But in general, you don't have to worry unless the color is changing dramatically, right? If I'm assuming you're talking about kind of a lighter or darker shade, the usual color. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking about periwinkle or mauve or exactly yeah. turquoise. If you are, no, if you we're have not, purple we're, we're... sperm, then you need to see the Mad Hatter and <laughs> <laughs> green sperm from the Grinch. But yeah, it is natural for it to change over time, depending on how recently you've ejaculated, the volume that you're producing, the diet that you have, how hydrated you are, and so on and so forth. Okay, second question. We're going back into conspiracies for a second because I yes. can't help myself. There's a friend. She's probably more of an acquaintance of yours, Whitney, but we have a mutual human being in our lives hmm. who about a month and a half ago was confiding in me that she wants to find some sperm and have a child as a single mother. She's not attached to mm -hmm. having yep. a partnership. She actually approached me about the potential of being her sperm donor. And she went on to tell me that as she's been poking around, she has, and I, I can't confirm this, that apparently the price of sperm from an unvaccinated man is going for a higher rate now at sperm banks or however the process financially works. I don't yep. know that they're yep. charging more for unvaccinated yep. sperm. Is that true or is that just some weird Internet rumor? This is completely true. Wow. And the reason for this is a lot of people are worried about how the vaccine may affect us. And there is beliefs that this could change our ability to conceive. And so, yeah, unvaccinated sperm is more expensive. And I will say even weirdly, even though I don't believe there's anything, and I think these really are conspiracy theories, I feel kind of good knowing that I banked my sperm before I got, you know, the vaccine or anything else for that matter. I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking here, Caleb? Because I could use an, an extra income stream right about now. I mean, what do you know offhand? What, what do you um, know? <laughs> I don't know, but I know some guys. I can. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, man. Yeah. 
Well, especially if you're on the fence or kind of delaying getting the vaccine as Jason is, Jason's probably like, well, maybe I should know this before I decide to get the vaccine. Honestly, the the ultimate irony would be imagine actually the people who don't want to get the vaccine were right all along. Right. And actually it renders everyone else infertile. That's the fear, the current conspiracy theory, right? We saw a huge spike in sperm freezing during COVID because people were also worried about how COVID might affect fertility. Uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't in a meaningful way. And then again, during the vaccinations, people are worried about what might happen before or after they take the vaccine. I mean, there must be some data about how vaccines impact fertility, but they just don't know about the COVID vaccine. Is that right? I don't think there's any concerns about any of the vaccines affecting fertility. But I think with, I mean, with especially with mRNA, which is such a new technology, there's probably a lot of things that we don't know that we don't know, right? So so it may not be fertility. There may be all kinds of unexpected things that, that happen to us. It, in my view, it's extremely unlikely, but the risks are never zero. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting time to be alive on planet Earth. And as you said earlier, the continued evolution of gender roles, parenthood, the increasing technologicalization, that's not even a word. We're in a world now where, and I have this conversation a lot with my mom and my mentor and, you know, they're in their seventies, just how radically accelerated the changes are on our planet right now. And it is going to be interesting just to see how all of this plays out in terms of fertility, in terms of population, global warming. I mean, we've covered so many different subjects today. And I don't know, to go back to a question you asked earlier, Whitney, am I open to changing my mind? I've always kind of joked that if the the world needed to be repopulated, I'd be like, I'll do it. And also that movie that came out in the 90s with Arnold Schwarzenegger Jr., where he's the first uh, Mm -hmm. man to ever carry a baby. Mm -hmm. I've actually said before, I'm more interested this is a bizarre disclosure. I'm more interested in carrying a baby than fathering a baby. If there was some genetic splicing where they turned me into a male seahorse and I could just just pop out babies like a seahorse human hybrid, I would sign the hell up for that. How is this the second time I've heard about male seahorses today? What does it say about my life? This is the second time someone's talking to me about male seahorses giving birth. What was the context of the first conversation? Lunch, a lovely lunch in the West Village of New York. Someone's like, did you know? (laughs) Now I know again. Gladly. I'm just putting it out there. If you decide to innovate, Caleb, with your your company legacy and you're like, we're looking for volunteers for the first uh, men on earth to carry a baby, I'd be like, you know where to go. Your buddy, Jason. I would do it. Gladly be the first man to carry a baby. I don't know why. I just I have more interest in that than fathering a baby. I no, no, right. I don't know. Of all of the discussions we've had over the years, this has never come up. And so it's it's a perfect example is you feel like you know someone and then one day they're like, Damn. hey, here's a fun fact they about me. They want to be a me. seahorse. <laughs> want to shoot out some kids. <laughs> I don't know if there's anywhere else to go after that comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after your semen color and your seahorse desires, I feel like I've learned more about you than I do with almost anyone else. Well, we will have to see if we ever are ever in Dearborn at the same time and go out for yes. uh, some amazing mujadra and... Oh, my God. Fatush you are speaking and... my language. Oh, my God, Jason. You can't yeah, just say this yeah. to me. Oh, yeah, no. We'll have to meet up for some amazing <laughs> Lebanese food at some point, Caleb. And Love it. yeah, I want to let everyone know I'm definitely interested in uh, getting this yeah. legacy kit. It's gorgeous branding, by the way. I went on your website and I thought, damn, that is a sexy collection kit. I mean, it really is. The branding is gorgeous. It's very high-end. It's very, very professional. We love getting men excited. 
Thank you. We always, <laughs> we always want to get men excited. So had to squeeze in some more puns. So that way, from an squeeze. SEO standpoint, <laughs> when people search for sperm puns, maybe they'll come yeah. across uh, this podcast and transcript. King, we're manifesting it right now, the three of us. Well, sperm I've already King. planned for that to be part of the podcast title. Good. So, yeah, that and spermageddon, I feel like, are really intriguing yeah. terms. <laughs> I, know, I thought about the seahorses. Seahorses yeah. sea and spermageddon with the sperm king. Yeah. That'll be the newsletter, the newsletter yeah. subject line. <laughs> Writing it down. What Writing Jason down. reveals about himself for oh, the very yes. first time. Getting to know you. Jason Getting to Seaman. know Jason Seaman at 44. Hopefully it's healthy. I'm going to find out. I don't know that I'm going to freeze it, Caleb, but I definitely want to get the test kit for sure. I do want to see. And as you said, Sweet. many golden nuggets you dropped today, that sperm health is a marker of overall health. So I do want to get the test kit and see awesome. you know, what it says about me. Very cool. Well, we would love to have you as a customer. Well, with that, if you too, dear listener, are interested in being a customer, we will link to givelegacy.com in the show notes at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can schedule a conversation. They have an incredible amount of resources on the website. And we'll also link to Caleb's Twitter feed because Caleb, you've got a lot of great articles and wonderful information you've been sharing on your socials. So if this is something that piques your interest, if this is something that uh, fires up your loins, We've got you covered with legacy. So, Kayla, this has been one of the most enjoyable, fun, informative <laughs> conversations we have yet had. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And that's saying a lot because we're up to around 300 episodes at this point. Wow. So. Yeah, one of my favorites. Like, legitimately, yeah. this was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. <laughs> that's awesome. The feeling is mutual. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I, I sometimes, I'll sometimes be on podcasts where someone shows up with, with just like earphones in and I know they're not professionals. I know they're not serious about what they're doing, right? Like they don't even have the setup. And you guys look ready to, you know. That used to be us. Well, technically, <laughs> yeah. no, technically, we've never just done that earphones, like with the mic as well. But that's what I, I think, I used to use before I got these yeah. headphones. So yeah, j I just wanted to create the nice. vibe. <laughs> nice. Awesome. No, this was, this was great. This was a lot of fun. And we touched everything from philosophy to biology, to eugenics, to cell phone radiation. I mean, we, we covered a lot of ground. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.